we have noted in the last two messages on this passage how that trials the Lord Jesus is teaching will typify the last days. That these things that he's describing are not just a description of what's to take place at the moments just before the Lord Jesus returns. These are just the beginning of birth pangs. This is just the beginning of the last days. Now you might decide today that we are in the last days of the last days, but those last days began on the occasion of Christ's ascension into heaven. And after that, the disciples began to experience much of the things that the Lord Jesus is prophesying would take place. They began to encounter and experience in their own lives. And so he's giving them some instructions on what's to take place. And out of that instruction, he has an exhortation for them. And the exhortation is there to endure. And the implication here is that the life and the setting and the context in which we're to carry out the Christian life and the Christian ministry is a context of resistance and difficulty that you're to endure through. And yet at the same time, as we've mentioned before, that environment actually is going to be conducive towards our ministry and our witness. And so the Lord Jesus gives a promise on the backside of this call to endure in the midst of this difficulty. This gospel is going to go into all the world and be proclaimed. The very resistance you face, the adversity you face, is going to actually contribute to your victory. In fact, there's no victory without adversity. These very things and the suffering that you're going to endure going through it is going to put you in line with my cross and the message of a cross and the message of a suffering Savior who has come to bear the iniquity and the sins of the world and enter into the misery of man's sin and is going to bring them out of it and bring them through it victorious. And you be willing to and you be ready to accept the suffering of this age and endure. And this gospel will go forward and succeed. And this gospel will reach the purpose that I have for it intended for it. And so the other thing we've mentioned out is that this is, in a sense, the final sermon or message that the Lord Jesus gives before he goes to the cross. There are other things that he'll teach his disciples as they're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, personal instructions and encouragement for them. But here is this in-depth outlined message that he delivers, and it's his last discourse before he goes to the cross. We might say it's his final words to us. And in his final words, one of the things he wants to do is to deliver to them an exhortation. You might come to this moment in your life at some point in time where you know that you're going to be able to give your children the last word that you give them, the last bit of instruction. You want that instruction to resonate after you're gone, and you want to exhort them to a certain kind of life or a certain type of morale or a certain type of direction that you want them to live and pursue. And so you give them the word of exhortation. The next thing that the Lord Jesus gives is a word of encouragement. Listen, this is going to prevail. You're a part of something that is going to prevail. But the other thing we notice here, and it's actually how the message begins, and it's the one thing that's going to be repeated most often here is the Lord Jesus also gives them a word of caution. He tells them not only to endure, but his word of caution is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. So it's Matthew 24, 4. The first word before the Lord Jesus begins instructing them is, Take heed that no one deceives you. Verse 5, Many will come and deceive many. Verse 11, Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. If you go on and read further, you'll see in verse 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You're the target of this deception. It's interesting to note that the last words of Christ before his death are, 
similar to the last words of Peter in his last writing to the church. And they're similar to the last words of Paul in his last letter to the churches. Peter's last letter is the letter of 2 Peter. Paul's last letter is the letter of 2 Timothy. In both of these, another thing that's interesting is they write about eschatology. They write about last things, last times, the last days. And then in that context, they both write to instruct or direct the body of Christ they're writing to to guard themselves against deception. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, tells them that he's about ready to put off his earthly tent and he's prepared to go to be with the Lord Jesus and to be into God's presence. Peter then begins warning in the second chapter of the scoffers that will come and also of the, of the turmoil that will take place in the last days. Now in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 17, he climaxes it with this warning. You, therefore, he writes, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away. Now that phrase, that word being led away is interesting because the Greek word for deceived means being led astray. And there are different words here, but it's the exact same concept. And so they're to some were interchangeable here. Being led away could be rightly read being deceived with the error of the wicked. Make sure, be on guard that you're not led away, you're not deceived led away by the air of the wicked. That's the application that Peter makes. That's the warning that Peter gives. That's the caution he gives in his last letter to the churches. Paul in 2 Timothy also speaks of the last days. And in the middle of his letter, he gives a clear warning as well. His last words of warning, you'll find them in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll let you turn your Bibles there. I hope you have nimble fingers this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read to you. Verses 12 and 13. And then we'll go over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. At the end of Matthew 24 and, then, and also Matthew 25, he's going to give a series of parables. And the focus and the intent and the purpose of the parables is to call the church to be on guard, to be watching, to be ready, to be looking. And Paul is going to give that type of instruction to the church as well. But it's being on guard in light of this deception that they're being cautioned about. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13, Paul writes, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's basically the whole argument the Lord Jesus is making in these first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 24 and his Olivet Discourse. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's going to be the nature of the age. It's a nature in which there's going to be an ongoing, revolving around of intensifying deception. 2 Timothy chapter 4, let me read to you verses 3 and 5. I might read down just through 5a. 2 Timothy 4, just go over there. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That's the same idea as being led astray here. That's that idea of deception. This is the context in which you're being called to be on guard, to be watchful. But you be watchful in all things. Guard against this being led astray. The Lord Jesus here, again, is talking about the end times. Peter and Paul are talking about the last days. When we come, by the way, to a consideration, there were some individuals who asked that I might speak and give a message on the last days. I think they're recognizing what's going on in the current day and age. And it's made them, at least it reminds them of something they've read in their Bible before. 
So they asked me to speak about those things. And so I think it's right that we do a study on the Olivet Discourse. We study Jesus' teaching on the last days. But when we come to studying the last days, we have to have a healthy instinct as we approach it. We're not to be studying the last days simply to be exercising a morbid curiosity in chronicling the increased perversity of the day and age in which we live, right? And comparing it to what the Bible said was going to be happening. We're not to be engaged in some kind of excited stress count in which we add up the increase of wars or the proliferation of pestilence or famines or earthquakes and get all excited about those things. That's not the reason that we're to study the last days. I would point out to you that the morals of the Roman world in which Peter and Paul lived in and the viciousness of the Roman government's power, which at that time seemed to be universal. It was as far as their eyes could go in terms of the reach of where men inhabited the earthly sphere. And the soon approaching destruction of the temple in 70 AD that the Lord Jesus has just prophesied about and the intensification of persecution that the Christians are going to endure told Peter and Paul and the apostles, we're in it, this is the last times, this is the last days. And the Lord Jesus doesn't seem to draw the disciples away from fully reaching that conclusion and that consideration. He allows that to be a part of what they're thinking. But even as he teaches them, he's not stressing a sense of alarm in them about these things. He's only telling them, let these things be a sign to you of a caution for your life. And the caution is this, don't be deceived. You endure, and you carry forth the calling that I've given you. That's the basic point. You'll see all these things, they're going to be happening, and here's what I want to tell you. Don't be deceived, endure, carry out the calling that I've given you. Persecution is not the greatest threat to the church. We are not so much imperiled by bad public policy and politics, not even by social and moral upheaval of pandemics and plagues. Our threat will not even be so much the violence of Antichrist or of the Antichrist once he comes to this world. As we've already considered, these things call for endurance. And they provide the context in which our message can oftentimes be communicated more and more convincingly to those around us. These things can actually work for our mission, not against them. They can work for us and not against us. No, the greatest danger of these last days is... The mass deception of the church. That's the greatest danger. By the way, the Lord Jesus indicated to his disciples there were things that he wasn't certain about. He didn't know the time of his second coming. He said this was only in the Father's hand to know these things. He couldn't answer their question. Is this when the Lord Jesus is going to return? When they were looking at the destruction of the temple, is this when you're going to return? He couldn't answer that question. That's the Father to know. It's not for me to know. But there are other things that the Lord Jesus speculates about that he doesn't know as a man, as a human being. And one of the things that he speculated about is found in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. I'll just read it to you because it's very quick. The Lord Jesus asks a question. He says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? He speculated as to whether or not there would not be a mass deception that would draw the church away and the faithful away from himself. These were the things that he warned against. And so these are the things that we need to concern ourselves with. What I want to do this morning is I want to ask a series of questions. And then I want to try to answer the question. And the first question I want to ask here is, how might this deception present itself? 
or what might be the cause or the vehicle that would lead us into deception. So let's answer that question first and let's think about the context in which the Lord Jesus is speaking to the disciples and what it is they're going to be experiencing. And the first thing I would say is this, that they could be deceived because as a result of the disruption of their patterns of worship. They could be deceived because of a disruption of their patterns of worship. The Lord Jesus has just told them that the temple that they have held dear as a focal point in the place from which they gather to worship God was going to be taken away and destroyed. Actually, a parallel account of this is found in Mark chapter 13. And in Mark chapter 13, the Lord Jesus tells them that they're going to be thrown out of their synagogues as well. That's the place where they regularly gather together to express their worship of God. Actually, it doesn't say they're going to be thrown out of their synagogues. It says they're going to be beaten in their synagogues. You're going to be thrown out, and if you go back there, they're going to beat you. Their whole pattern of worship is disrupted. The patterns of worship that they had lived under are going to be turned against them, and they're not to be deceived into thinking that as a result, they've lost what is essential to spiritual life. It's not uncommon for us to begin to rest our confidence in the customs of our worship. This is not to say that our customs are wrong. There are many things that we have inherited and traditions that have been passed down to us through the ages that are valuable and they contribute to our worship and our time that we spend together and the way in which we focus ourselves on the Lord Jesus and go before him. But the Lord Jesus is also indicating that it's very possible that those things and those forms and those ways of worshiping can be completely disrupted in times of persecution and difficulty and as meaningful as they might be in our worship they become a problem when we find meaning in them themselves meaning in the tradition of the custom themselves meaning in the fact that we just keep doing the same thing over and over again or we keep coming to the same place meaning in just the place meaning in just the pattern of music that we sing meaning in the way in which we express ourselves in worship it's meaningful it's good but if we find meaning in it in itself and feel like this is what's necessary for us in our spiritual life. Well, there's a problem then because their meaning only comes to us when they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And even though the mountains be shaken and all of our customs be taken from us and we are driven out from the place where we gather together and we are able to do these wonderful expressions of worship that we have formulated from generation to generation, he hasn't changed. Not to be deceived when you have the disruption of the patterns of your worship. Second thing he says, they could have been deceived through the distractions that were caused by the tumult that was going to be happening in the day in which they lived. But they're not to be distracted by earthquakes or famines or social upheaval or political collapse or the multiplication of wars. When they see these things, they're just to conclude that this is the beginning of labor pains. In other words, The Lord Jesus is telling them, don't be sidetracked by these things. I think we should note something here of the Lord's tone and what he says. He doesn't seem to be overly excited regarding the very cataclysmic events that he's declaring. Listen again to how he says it. After he tells them all these terrible things they're going to see, he says, see that you're not troubled. Don't be troubled by this. These things must come to pass. These things have to happen. And it's not the end yet. These are just the beginning of birth pangs. He's not worried by these events that will take place in the last days. He's not fretting one iota about the wars and the earthquakes and the persecutions and the abominations that will rise up in the last days. 
He's not disturbed by the cataclysmic events that will occur upon the earth and in the heavens on the occasion of his second coming to earth to judge. He mentions all of these as matters of prophetic fact. They're only caution signs that his followers are to learn to read. And when they see these things, the message they're to be declaring to them is, be careful that you be not deceived. We've all driven up through the roads of Idaho, and we've all seen caution signs, a bunch of rocks tumbling down on some yellow sign, a picture of some deer wandering across the road. You're, you're being told to look out. You don't want to run into a rock or a deer. And I've been in places where the caution sign is to watch out for elephants crossing the, the street in different countries. And you don't want to run into an elephant either. And you have to read the sign and know what it's warning you of. When you see all these things, when you see all these things, and you see what looks like, oh, this looks like the last days. It's a warning sign to you. But the message is, be on guard against deception. The events around you are not such a threat to you as the deception that it warns you about. Don't be distracted by these things. Instead, be alerted against deception. Here's another thing. They could have been deceived in an effort to seek to avoid or escape the distresses or trials or tribulations that were before them. The problem with problems is that you focus on the problem and you try to solve it and you give yourself to whatever you can do to advert yourself from the situation before you and there are some things in which there are no quick and easy answers. There are some things that come upon you so universally and so completely that all you can do is endure them. The Lord Jesus is indicating to us to some extent much of what we're going to face in the last days is going to be on that level. Some hardships leave us only with the need to fall upon the will of God and trust in Him. When you're being fed to lions, by the way, you don't deliberate over what part of your body to let them eat upon first. Do I give them my hand or do I give them my feet? You don't argue about which part of the arena to run to to live a little bit longer. You trust yourself to the Lord in a moment like that and that's what they need to focus on. Not solutions, not answers, not ways out, not trying to solve the problems with immediate responses, but just being on guard because in moments like that when you're trying to find quick answers to the dilemmas that you're facing, you become increasingly susceptible to deception. You'll take whatever relief is offered to you in the immediate moment, whether it's of God or not. So be careful. Be careful in the moment. Reading into these dilemmas and seeing these things, be careful that you don't somehow try to get yourself out of it. Also, when you have a series of dilemmas hitting you, you might think, oh, what is God doing to me? Why is God doing this to me? And you're filled with a sense of insecurity and someone comes along to promote you with some word that will make you feel good about yourself for a second and you'll latch on to it. Well, no, you're just to trust in God. You're to rest in God. Your attitude in the midst of these things is to recognize that God is sovereign. You're not just to be seeking solutions, but you're to be resting in his sovereign way among the world, you maybe should have the attitude that Habakkuk has. If you can, go to Habakkuk. And let's read the last words of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is describing a great onslaught of the enemy that's come against his nation, God using an unrighteous people to judge the people of Israel, and Habakkuk is confused, and God is not relenting, in the distresses that they're facing. But at the very end of Habakkuk's complaint and concern, he comes to a conclusion that is right and good. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And by the way, this is the attitude that keeps you from being deceived. 
keeps you from coming up with quick answers to solve the problems and distresses in your life. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, though the supply chain be disrupted, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. I'm going to trust in him. In the middle of the day, I'm going to trust him. This is an attitude of rest and trust that keeps you from deception, but the opposite, just trying to solve the problem, trying to meet it, trying to avert it, trying to avoid it. That can lead you into answers that are deceptive. Here's another question for you. This one we can answer, I think, quite quickly. What is deception? The Lord Jesus is warning against deception. What is deception? And I would say to you this, that deception is a truth or a good distorted to make an attractive untruth or evil. It's a truth or a good that is distorted to make an attractive untruth or evil. Basically, deception is a distortion of reality. It does not need to be a major deviation from the truth. In fact, it is most deceptive when it's a small divergence by degrees from God's truth. You divert from God's truth just by degree and you can lead a person in a very short time miles and miles away from God's truth. And so Satan uses twisted truths to weave his lies and his deceptions. Evil is not the opposite of good. Evil is the deformity of good. You can always find a little good in what is evil. This is what makes it so deceptive, so subtle. So here's another question. Where is deception found? If that's what deception is, where is it found? And let me just suggest to you that it's usually found lying near to the truth. It's usually found flying near to It's not the truth. It's not in the truth, but it's, it's right alongside of it. So you have to be on guard. And you have to be discerning. And you have to be knowledgeable of God's truth. Here's along those lines. If it's found near the truth, we could also say something like this. That deception usually is something that rises up from within and not from without. Deception is usually something that rises up from within and not from without. The false teachers that came upon the early church, threatened to undo it, rose up within the ranks of the early church, not from without it. They came with their false teaching, bringing about maybe the contemporary wisdom of their age, but they brought it to the church with, from within it. The Gnostics that read about, the Libertines are names that are given to them, Nicolaitans, Judaizers. It's not important right now that you know what all their teaching was. Just know this. It rose up from within the church. And it was their instruction and their words and their ideas that were providing a place and a ground and the point at which deception took place. And the application for us might be like this. The teachings of the cults in our day and age should not be our major concern. We're not to be threatened by the literature of the Moonies. I know it might disturb you, you might not like it, but it shouldn't th- you shouldn't be threatened by the literature of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the westernized Buddhist that puts his prayer flags all over the place. That's not the thing that should concern you most of all. That's not where 
we are most endangered. We're not endangered by the new rabid atheism, who is atheist who's writing his emotional books and giving his really infantile arguments. Those are not the individuals that undermine our faith. No. The danger of deception, for the most part, rises up in the pulpit of evangelical churches. It rises from the blogs of professing believers who have popularized their teaching by their edgy forms of communication and their certainty through a few words that they've captured, understood all that the Bible means and want to teach it to us. And It rises from the periodicals of schools that have declined and moved away from being guided by the traditions that have been handed down from the fathers of God's word and God's instruction, and now they've discovered a new thing, and surprisingly, a new thing is largely informed by the cultural sensitivities of the age in which we live in. Those are the types of situations, those are the things we have to be on guard against. We have to be on guard against the things that are being taught around us. We have to always be Berean in our mindset, constantly testing the instruction and the ideas that are brought before us by the word of God and submitting to it and listening to it. And, you know, when the church, the early church would have somebody come and they would prophesy that the Lord had given them a message, there was instruction to be given that they were to be tested. It was to be tested by the leadership of the church to see whether it was God or not. And let me just say to you, that's always the spirit in which we're to engage in the instruction of God's word. The Bible says, John says to the believer that you have an anointing and you have no need that anyone should teach you. He's writing to the early church this way because there were these Gnostics came along that had said, we've got this special knowledge and you've got to listen to what we have to say because God's given us a new revelation. And he says, no, you've got an anointing. You have no need that any man should teach you. Now, John is not saying, don't listen to me because he's teaching why he's saying that. He's saying you need to be discerning about these things. You need to ask the Spirit to guide you. You need to know God's Word and trust that the Spirit of God can confirm these things to your heart. And that's true here in this place. It's true before what I say. You have to be discerning. You have to know it in light of God's Word and in light of the Spirit that God gives to His born-again child. And that's where deception can be found. And so we have to be careful about these things. We have to be on guard against these things. So deception is... Close to truth. Deception is most often found within and not without. And that was the dilemma in the church in the early days. And it's the dilemma in the church still today. Another thing is that deception is found where faith is weak. Deception is found wherever faith is weak. You know, most Christian cults want to find people who believe that the Bible is God's word, but also people that don't know what it says. In Hebrews chapter 11.1, we're told that faith is the evidence of things that are not seen. However, when faith is weak, what happens is an increased interest in the evidence of things that are seen and felt. When our faith becomes weak, there is nothing wrong with Christian apologetics. I actually enjoy it. I find if you look at the things that I watch or I listen to, you'll find that I lean towards listening to some intellectual that's talking about various apologetic arguments that defend and fortify our belief in faith. However, I have to tell you, and now you can see that's kind of growing interest, as if My belief in the Lord Jesus is sealed in the testimony of some egghead telling me what the philosophical argument is for why I should believe what I believe. My faith is grounded in a Savior who's risen from the dead and been validated by the justifying of the Holy Spirit who gave him that resurrection power. So we have to be careful that Our faith doesn't shrink so much that we rely upon the argument of some apologists. Here's what's going to happen. Some of these apologists that you depend upon to give you confidence in your faith are going to at some point in time because they're constantly engaging the unbelieving mind. 
and they're constantly regulating what they say, not by God's word, but in response to the unbelieving mind. They're subtly going to be influenced by that unbelieving mind, and eventually, and this has happened over and over again, they're going to leave the faith. And everyone who's kind of grounded their faith in their arguments is going to have this major crisis and dilemma. Well, should I leave with them? What was the basis of my faith? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's not relying and putting my foundation down upon someone's intellectual arguments. On the opposite side, there are other individuals who would have you believe what you believe because they promise you some ecstatic experience, some emotional experience, some engagement of the Spirit of God that is so overwhelming and overpowering that this is the thing that you're to believe in. And so you have a clamor after, and you have people that will go to church, and what they want to do is they just want something to hit them in the gut. They just want some emotional encounter or experience that will somehow tell them that what they believe is true. And again, wherever faith is weak, deception is right around the corner waiting for us. It's fertile soil for deception and so be cautious be cautious of a ministry and message of a church today that's fixated upon sensations that's promising people the fulfillment of their felt needs that's impatient to give them quick fixes and happy endings and a good boost for their emotional mindset it's fertile soil for deception because these things are not an expression of faith but of a people in one way or another who are seeking some kind of sign, an intellectual sign, an experiential sign, be on guard. It's not that any of those things are wrong, right? It's, if you've trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus, you know that that walk with the Lord Jesus will impact your emotional mindset at times. You will experience it. It's right. And you know as well when you met the Lord Jesus that he didn't close your mind, he opened it up. You began to think like you'd never thought before and evaluate things with a sound mind. And so there's nothing wrong with the intellect, there's nothing wrong with the emotion, but just be on guard that you don't begin to make these objects in themselves just like another person might make the traditions of the church the object of their worship. They're to lead us to place our faith completely and totally upon the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus saw the deception that was coming and the testings that were going to come shortly upon that young church. And they would need a faith to endure to the end. And if they bought into a deception that said being a follower of Jesus meant the end of all your troubles, or that following him would mean that all your concerns would be satisfied, they'd never make it past the mouths of hungry lions in the Roman amphitheaters. And they would not overcome the stonings and the tortures and the betrayals that would await them. And they would fail then to bring to us the faith that they had received from Jesus Christ himself. If that early church let themselves become dependent for their faith upon the existence of religious structures and institutions, they would have never endured when driven from temple precincts and cast out of synagogues, or when they saw the temple torn down before them. And if their faith had been put in human government, they would have faltered when the government that presided over them was the government that was persecuting them. They needed a faith that was fixed on the truth, a faith that did not always changed to their immediate experiences and did not deliver them from the sorrows and difficulties of the world, but a faith that changed their identity in the world so that they knew that they were in the world but not of it. They had been saved from it. They had to have a faith that allowed them to rise above the wrath of the world that was around them, 
but they would not yield to the fear of the wrath of the world that was around them when they knew that they had been saved from the wrath of God. Their faith said that was more important. The age's wrath and the age's rage was nothing in comparison to them with the eternal reward that had been offered them through Jesus Christ. And faith that's strong like that endures. But where that faith is weak, deception takes place. Deception also takes place where sin exists. Hebrews 3.13 calls us and warns us against the deceitfulness of sin. You know how this is. Immediately after committing a known and conscious sin, our hearts usually begin devising a cover-up for them. We come up with all kinds of excuses or reasons or rationales or uh, we tell ourselves that this is a mere exception that we don't have to worry about. It. And lies are the oxygen that fire, the fire of sin needs and requires in order to keep on burning. And sin always needs a rationalization to accommodate it. And that's where deception takes place. It's not that bad. Uh, no one will ever know. Uh, I can't help it. I have no control over these things. It's the woman that you gave me. Whatever the excuse is, deception comes where sin exists and it's not confessed and it's not hated and it's not turned from. As a result, when you don't hate it and you don't turn from it, you know what happens? Your heart becomes increasingly hardened to God's truth and God's way and your heart becomes then increasingly susceptible to deception. And so, again in Hebrews chapter 3, We're told not to harden our hearts. In verse 12 it says, See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's also where deceit comes in. One of the things I realize when I read this is that there needs to be on our part a, a readiness, a readiness to constantly keep our hearts soft before God. Let me recommend something for you, just a little practical advice. Before you go to bed at night, do a review of your day. Look it over. I don't know what command you want to apply to it, what command you got wrong, because there's oftentimes a lot that we miss, but here's one for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now go to bed at night and say, did I do all that I did out of love for God? Were the actions that I took and the attitudes I had and the things I did, did it present a love for my neighbor? Here's another one. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's a command. Before you go to bed at night, think, were my choices? Does the pattern of the decisions and the thoughts and the things that I allowed and the things that I pursued and the things that I conducted with my time, were they expressed out of a desire to bring glory to God? And then having done an honest evaluation of those things, where you fell short in your love of God, where you fell short in your love of man, where you failed to act with a driving impulse to bring glory to God, confess it. Ask God to forgive you and cleanse you and wash you. If you do that on a consistent basis, you will take away the callous of deceitfulness of sin. You'll unmask the lies that you tell yourself in order to justify your behavior. Lord, whatever the mitigating circumstances were, no matter how annoying my neighbor was, no matter how that guy cut me off and I almost hit him in traffic, no matter how I had been so disappointed by this thing that I really was hoping would come through in my stocks or whatever it was. <laughs> doesn't matter, Lord. I, my reaction and my attitude and my actions were about me 
They weren't about loving you, and they weren't about loving my neighbor, and they didn't give you glory. Strip it all away before God and those things and confess it and let, his, let him come and wash you and cleanse you. And What God will do is he'll not only forgive you, but he'll begin to guard your heart against deception. If you think you're in the last days, and I think you should think that, right? If you see things that are beginning to parallel what the Bible's talking about what happened in the last days, and I think we are, there's a sign for you here. You better do everything you can to guard yourself against deception. Against deception. Here's one other place I think where deception rises up. It occurs in the place where God is not acknowledged and where God's answer for our great need is not received. Hebrews 3.12 speaks of the unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Whenever we're not acknowledging God's presence and wherever not responding to God's answer, we bring ourselves into deception. There is, in our day and age, a lot of fracturing and anxiety going on in our society right now. And it really is, and it's, it's universal. It's happening because, to a large extent, how people are reacting to this pandemic that's taken place. And it's being acknowledged. You go and you listen to just some secular individual who's trying to sort out what's taking place, and everyone acknowledges this high, extreme level of fear and anxiety. Let me tell you what happens when you're, what they're afraid of. In the long run, what they're afraid of. They're afraid of dying. <laughs> they're afraid of dying. And you know what else they're afraid of? They're afraid of in dying. If they only believe that the curtain goes out and everything's done and everything's forgotten and there's no problem, that's not what they're afraid of. The person is afraid of death. The Spirit of God is there reminding them of what they're to encounter after death. And subtly and subconsciously, they're afraid of judgment. They're afraid of judgment. God the Spirit is pressing upon them a concern. In the face of imminent death or suggested death or possible death, you're reminded of your sins. You're reminded of your lack of righteousness. And in the light of these things, you're also reminded of a judgment that you're going to face. And these are the things that are pressing upon the conscience of people in the face of the pandemic that we're having right now. But what's happening is, when men are afraid, they go and they try to come to a solution or an answer for these things, and they don't go to God for an answer to these things. They come and they think, I've got to find some answer for my fear of judgment, something that will placate my fears and take away my fears. And so they look for responses that they feel are righteous. They begin to add up their righteous responses. And they plan out what it is they're going to do based on what is righteous or what they think is right and good in order to feel good about themselves. And this doesn't just happen before pandemics. It happens in all kinds of situations. It happens when, though, major distresses become upon nations. All of a sudden, you'll find when nations are brought under major distresses that they all come to a uniformed idea of what they ought to do because they find out what they think is the righteous response. And they want to be righteous because they want to escape judgment. But it's their own prescriptions it's their own ideas and then they want to impose the ideas on anyone who doesn't accept them and actually they're not even open to the suggestion that their responses are good and right because it's they're less concerned about whether they're good and right than that it demonstrates to themselves or brings comfort to them that they're righteous they're writing in their own righteousness i think that's what we're facing today it's people who are afraid and people who are in fear of dying, and people who are afraid, rightly afraid of judgment, and individuals who are finding their solutions and their answers not in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in his saving work, 
not in a Savior who's died for their sins and risen again to give him his righteousness. They're doubling down in the nature of man. They're doubling down in the belief that they can find their own righteousness by their own actions. And what I'm saying to you is this leads to deception. And if we build our argument about those things and we engage those people at that level, we're giving in to the points at which they're being deceived. Instead, there's an answer for these things. Let's, let's, let's go to the next one. So deception occurs in the place where God is not acknowledged or where God's answer for our great needs are not received. Men seek to find the answer in devising answers in their own righteousness. How is deception disarmed then? And this is the last question. It is disarmed through the gospel. Deception is disarmed through the gospel. We gain hold of good news, and having gained that good news, we find God's relief and God's deliverance. And God's good news always comes to us on the backside of bad news. We're sinners, and in the moment in which we stop defending ourselves, in the moment in which we stop trying to present our own righteousness, in the moment when we stop trying to achieve our own preparation for God's judgment, when we recognize there's nothing that we can do to escape God's judgment but to confess that we're sinners and that we're in need of what only He alone can give us, in that moment the gospel comes pouring in and we find the ground at which we're protected from deception. Take your Bible and go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And let me read to you verses 6 through 9. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Here's what John writes. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When we begin to take the gospel to our hearts, we do so by confessing our sinfulness. And in this simple act, it separates us out from the dangers of deception. When I am no longer trying to defend myself, trying to situate a sense of my righteousness in the positions that I take, trying to justify myself one way or another in the midst of the social interactions we have and in the midst of what different people are staking out as the right and righteous response, when instead I say, I'm just a sinner who deserves God's judgment, but I am delivered by his righteousness alone. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives me any right standing in the world and before God and before judgment and death. When it happens, I begin to remove myself to fall prey to the deception that short-circuits the gospel. Then, in the gospel, we take up the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We don't lift up our goodness. We don't lift up our right opinions and our right ideas. But we accept only the goodness of Jesus Christ covering us. The gospel, when completely bowed to, removes from us the need to establish our own righteousness. It reveals only that we're sinners in need of mercy, And when you live your life as a sinner in need of mercy and saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, you begin to mute the deceptive voices that appeal to your own self-justifying, self-serving, self-vindicating ways. What though people don't understand me? What if I'm disagreed with? What if my position is at odds with the community in the church or the community outside of the church? I'm right with Jesus because I'm a sinner and I just need His grace. And this keeps us from being used as puppets or ploys to just all the deceptive voices around us. Deception is defeated at the point of the gospel. 
Here's the second thing. We find that deception is defeated through a personal knowledge of God and His Word. Remember in Mark 12, the Lord Jesus spoke of the error or deception of the Sadducees by saying you're greatly error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Nothing will answer deception better than a deep, personal relationship, walk, and knowledge of God. And no one can go into that relationship without a consistent conversation in which they're in God's Word, reading God's Word, listening to His voice. To know Him, you must know His Word. And in knowing His Word, you need to know more and more about Him. So saturate yourself in the language of the Word of God, revealing to you the life of God, and it protects you from deception. Paul is aware of the looming crisis as he writes Timothy. This is in 2 Timothy, again, where he speaks of the last days. And he encourages Timothy to begin a pattern of ministry that will be a defense against the deception of the last days. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, you remember Paul first reminds Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired of God, and that it's profitable for doctrine and for proof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness. And immediately after this, in verse 2 of chapter 4, he commands Timothy this way, you preach the word in season and out of season. Let the word of God and the knowledge that it brings of myself and my will be the thing that guards you against deception. Here's one last thing, and it's very similar to it, and I just give it as close. We guard ourselves against deception through a personal knowledge and intimate reliance upon the character of God. A personal knowledge and intimate reliance upon the character of God. James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. James writes to the people and says, Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like a shifting shadow. If you only knew what God was like, if you only knew what God was like, and you had a deep, personal, growing knowledge of Him, you would guard yourself against the deception. Deception is always somehow curtailed to whatever the prevalent wisdom of the moment is. Truth is eternal. Therefore, it is exceedingly relevant. It's the truth of who God is. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray. We pray for the body of Christ in the world today. We pray, dear God, that we might not be distracted by the upheaval that is all around us and not distracted by the solutions that men cry out from one corner to the other, nor to the pressures that are placed upon us externally and coercively. We pray instead, dear God, that we might be guarded by a supreme and profound confidence of what you've accomplished at the cross on our sakes and where you met us. You met us as sinners. You met us with no claim of righteousness in ourselves. Oh God, guard us against somehow defending ourselves, of uh, espousing our own wisdom. Here's the wisdom. I'm a sinner and I'm in need of your mercy. I'm in need of your mercy, oh God. And I found it, and it found me at the cross of Jesus Christ where... I received a righteousness that is not my own, the righteousness of Jesus Christ covering me and washing me and keeping me. Oh God, let your church come back to the heart of the gospel and live in it courageously and boldly. Let them live in it so that we might have peace. That we might have peace even, Lord, when we're not, not being pushed along by the 
spirit and the fear of the age. May all we do be an act of faith. You've told us whatever is not of faith is sin. And oh God, our faith resides in this great saving work of our Savior Jesus Christ. Let that be where we find our position and our standing. And we'll give you glory for that. And we ask you, God, that this might stir up within the body of Christ a, a greater eagerness to be in your word consistently, a greater eagerness to enjoy your presence, to walk with you and talk with you and commune with you. And dear God, let us know the fellowship of your Holy Spirit in these conversations, guiding, directing us, and giving us understanding and wisdom. For this we will humbly and gratefully thank you. We ask, dear God, that you would allow us as possible to live peaceably with all people, pointing them to the one point of fixed and profound and unchanging truth, our Savior who is King of all. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.